2: Hello, and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. You might have noticed that the podcast is going out a little early this week. That's because today marks the 210th anniversary of the Battle of Fuente don Euro, a battle in which Wellington did a rare thing, made a mistake that very nearly led to his defeat. So yes, you heard right, Wellington is li- in line for some criticism today. Before we launch in though, I just want to do a very quick shout out to my patrons whose generosity makes this podcast possible. For more details on how you can support this content, check out the links in the description. Let me start by setting the scene for the Battle of Fuente Donuro. Taking place on the 3rd to the 5th of May 1811, it sat almost exactly in the middle of the Peninsular War. The war wasn't going particularly well for either side by this point, and the next 12 months would see the conflict descend into a bloody stalemate on the Spanish-Portuguese border, whilst elsewhere in Spain the French gradually sought to cement their control by snuffing out pockets of resistance. The reason for that stalemate on the Spanish-Portuguese border was the stubborn resistance that was being mounted by an Anglo-Portuguese army under the command of Arthur Wellesley, then Earl, later Duke of Wellington. In 1810, the French had launched what was supposed to be their last major assault on Portugal, designed to evict the British once and for all, and bring the country back under French control. To accomplish the task, Napoleon had ordered the formation of what was termed the Army of Portugal, a French force which would be given the job of taking and holding the country. Although initially the plan had been for Napoleon to command the force himself, the 1809 campaign against the Austrians culminating at Wagram, and the subsequent dynastic concerns, not least Napoleon's marriage to the Austrian princess Marie-Louise, meant that the emperor was rather preoccupied and the task was given to Marshal Massena. Messina had a much smaller force than had initially been planned for the Portugal expedition, but made the best of it. Despite being beaten at the Battle of Bussaco in late September 1810, it seemed that Wellington's force was running for the sea, until the French encountered the lines of Torres Vedras, a network of fortifications that Wellington had been planning for more than a year. A complete intelligence failure, or intelligence blackout depending on your perspective, meant that Massena knew nothing about their scale until the reports started coming in from the advanced cavalry patrols. Over the winter of 1810-11, therefore, Massena faced an impossible situation. He didn't even attempt to force his way through the lines of Torres Vedras, he clearly decided that it wasn't worth the human cost of trying to break through with his existing force. Instead, he referred up appealing to Napoleon for reinforcements but not even getting enough men to make up the losses his army had already sustained in the campaign. Yet sitting in front of the lines and waiting was not an option. He could not remain indefinitely in a hostile country and the British and Portuguese forces had conducted a scorched earth policy evacuating most of the civilians behind the lines and destroying mills and crops. As supplies dwindled his army began to starve. After a brief pullback and surprising everyone with the tenacity with which his army held on in Portugal, in March 1811 he admitted defeat, withdrawing back towards the Spanish-Portuguese border. As Wellington's army advanced after them, they found the country had been devastated by the French soldiers, who had murdered and raped civilians and destroyed their houses and livelihoods. The destruction of towns had been sanctioned and even organised by Massena's headquarters. By April, Wellington's troops had driven the French back across the River Coa and out of Portugal altogether. And although a couple of skirmishes were effective defeats for Wellington, the French weren't able and didn't show any great inclination in making a stand to try and defeat the Anglo Portuguese force in open battle. The major exception to the complete liberation of Portugal, however, was the fortress of Almeida. In 1810, this had been in Allied hands, but had swiftly fallen to the French. When a freak accident saw the magazines ignite. Now, in French hands, Messina left a force in this toehold on the Portuguese side of the border, whilst withdrawing his force to the region of Theodore Rodrigo on the Spanish side. On the 7th of April, Wellington's army blockaded Almeida, but developments were forcing him to rethink his strategy as the strategic situation on the border had changed. In March, The Spanish fortress of Baderhof was captured by the French, meaning that three of the four major fortresses in the region were now in French hands. Wellington was frustrated when he heard this news, which reached him in mid-March. As listeners may recall from my discussion with Marcus Beresford, Wellington now had to make plans for the capture of Baderhof as well as Almeida and Theodad Rodrigo. He had planned to march to relieve the city and knew that recapturing it would be a huge task. As a result he detached two divisions of his army under marshal beresford along with the portuguese troops to try and take the town it meant that he had a smaller force with which to conduct operations against messina giving the french marshal a slim numerical advantage in the meantime the french had not been idle after regrouping and resting his army the french always showed a remarkable ability to swiftly shake themselves down after reverses and get back to the business of campaigning Massena now sought to relieve the blockaded fortress of Almeida. The French advanced with 42,000 infantry, 4,500 cavalry and 38 guns. Wellington's available force had been reduced to about 40,000 men after detaching forces for Beresford's contingent and the blockade at Almeida. Of those, just 23,000 were British, the remainder being Portuguese. Wellington effectively had two choices – Abandon the blockade of Almeida or stand and fight. The latter was the only real option, and he therefore occupied a defensive position centering on the lines of Fuente d'Onuro, determined to stop the French from relieving the fortress. Fuente d'Onuro, just a few miles into Spain, actually sits about ten miles to the southeast of Almeida. Wellington's force occupied a roughly twelve mile long front. From the ruins of Fort Conception to the north, to Nave de Hava in the south whilst Pack blockaded the French inside Almeida Portuguese cavalry and Erskine's 5th division guarded the northern approach past Fort Conception a couple of miles to the south Campbell's 6th division barred the road from the confusingly named Alameda to Almeida Campbell and Erskine faced off against Rainier's 2nd corps but their position was very strong, with a ravine of the Dos Casas stream protecting their front. Effectively in the centre of Wellington's position lay Fuente Don Euro itself, which would become the scene of bitter fighting. Here the Allied commander gathered the bulk of his force. Spencer's 1st division, Picton's 3rd, Houston's 7th and Crawford's light divisions were all poised to be used if needed. Yet Wellington's right flank was vulnerable, Open ground to the south meant that it was a position that could easily be turned, something that would play a crucial role in how the battle unfolded. The position was, as Roy Muir points out, one which was always going to favour the defender. Massena initially appears to have made little attempt at manoeuvre, instead favouring a frontal assault on the town of Fuente Don euro The French attack made good progress despite fierce resistance, with Wellington having to throw in the first 71st, 1st 79th and 2nd 24th to the fight as it ebbed and flowed throughout the course of the day. Although Rainier made a demonstration to the north, this was nothing more than that and simply sought to pin down the forces to the north. The French lost 650 men on the first day compared to an Allied loss of 259. Crucially for the Allies, there was no French breakthrough. The following day, the 4th saw a truce requested by the French, which both sides used to tend to their dead and wounded. In the town, there was some amicable fraternisation, although this seems to have been the only part of the line where this occurred. Messina, meanwhile, took the opportunity to reconnoitre the Allied position more closely, travelling the entire length of the Allied line. In the north, he came dangerously close to the Allied artillery, which had to be expressly ordered not to fire. Such a course of action was not deemed to be the type of gentlemanly conduct that commanders engaged in, even if it did have the chance to majorly disrupt the enemy's command structure. In the process, Massena identified the key weakness of Wellington's position, the weak right flank. Three French divisions and a large cavalry contingent were therefore moved south with the aim of attacking and outflanking the Allied Army on the 5th of May. Wellington was not ignorant to this threat. And responded in a way that he thought would be sufficient to contain it, sending the 7th Division south. It was a significant mistake. The 7th Division was the smallest of Wellington's army, comprising of two fairly raw British battalions, by the standards of the Peninsula War at least, they hadn't been out there very long, with the rest being Portuguese troops. They were also out on something of a limb, being some two miles to the south of Fuente Don Euro, Admittedly, Campbell's 6th Division was about two miles north and Erskine's 5th was a couple of miles beyond them, but they had the ravine protecting their front. Houston's division didn't. The reasoning for that mistake is probably that Wellington underestimated what Massena had in mind, perhaps imagining that the intention was simply to flank Fuente Don Euro and attack it from the south as well as the east. At any rate, that isn't what happened. At dawn on the 5th of May, the French resumed the offensive, attacking the southernmost end of Wellington's position. The guerrillas, occupying the region of Nevada Ava, the southernmost tip of the Allied line, were driven back with comparative ease by French cavalry, and as the French infantry joined in the fight, the 7th Division began to face the very real risk of being encircled and cut off. Wellington therefore had to move fast to save the 7th Division and draw up a new battle line. The second task was somewhat easier than the first. The Light Division was sent forward to support and cover the withdrawal of the 7th in a manoeuvre that would test the discipline and steadiness of both formations. At the same time, the 1st and 3rd Divisions were moved into a position to form a line stretching west from Fuente do Nuro towards Frenada in what had formerly been the Allies' rear. This meant that the Allied line now resembled an L-shape, with Fuente do in the elbow of that L. At the same time, Messina now applied pressure on Fuente do itself, trying to keep Wellington occupied and potentially achieve the breakthrough onto the heights behind, whilst also seeking to cut off the Allied 7th Division. Thanks to some fierce support from Allied cavalry, the French horsemen that tried to assault the 7th were in a fair amount of disorder, making coordination more of a challenge. The French infantry had also failed to follow up with their comrades on horseback, instead moving to assault Wellington's main battle line, which brought the 7th vital time to establish communication with the Light Division. The Light Division's task was to create a screen with cavalry support to allow the 7th Division to pull back and take up a position in the Allies' far right. In an incredibly well coordinated sequence of moves the light division retreated in lines of squares with artillery and cavalry support preventing the French cavalry from pre- from pressing home. This meant the artillery were constantly having to limber, move, unlimber, fire a few rounds, limber up again and move yet again. It was remarkable that the Allies were able to escape with less than 500 casualties. Meanwhile, Massena's assaults on Fiente Don Euro were yielding predictable results. Though the French should have held the advantage by now being able to assault the town from both the south and the east, a skilful defence was conducted by the 71st and 79th Highland Battalions along with the 2nd Battalion, 24th. As pressure increased with Massena feeding three battalions of elites, Wellington had to respond by sending in light companies of the 1st and 3rd Divisions before committing the 1st 45th, 74th and 1st 88th to the fight, units that have become particularly renowned for their combat ability. Taking Frente Don Euro was a fundamental element of Messina's strategy, and should have been a precursor to the more general attack on the Allied lines. With the town still in Allied hands, and with Allied artillery utilising a rare advantage in numbers to overpower their French counterparts, the battle effectively died in a stalemate with Massena not being willing probably based on his experiences at Basarco, to attack Wellington on ground of his choosing without enjoying any significant advantage. The battle of Fuente de Oñoro was therefore at an end. After two days of fighting the French had suffered 2800 casualties the allies had lost 1800. Massena had fought his last battle. He was replaced by one of Napoleon's protégés, Auguste Marmont, the Duke of Ragusa, and was appointed a local commander at Marseille. Masséna would eventually die in 1817, and was buried at the Père-Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. What then did Fuente d'Ognero achieve? In the short term, it secured the fall of Almeida. Three French soldiers volunteered to carry a message to the garrison uh, about the need to evacuate it two were caught, and being dressed as civilians, they were shot as spies. The third succeeded, and on the night of the 10th to 11th of May, slipped out of the fortress, blowing the fortifications in the process. Though pursued, three quarters of the garrison escaped, much to Wellington's frustration. He described it as the most disgraceful military event that has yet occurred to us. The incident had ugly consequences. Though Wellington never blamed any single individual, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Bevan of the Fourth Foot felt that he was responsible and asked to try and clear his name through a court of inquiry. When this was refused, he committed suicide. Was Wellington to blame? That's a difficult one to answer. Bevan had struggled with his mental health, suffering from long bouts of depression. His last letter to his wife made no mention of the Almeida incident, and it's therefore very difficult to definitively establish a direct link between Wellington's rebuke of officers which were often tinged with sarcasm, and Bevan's actions. What is clear is that Wellington never publicly blamed Bevan, though that's not to say that it didn't, at the very least, contribute to his suicide. The reality is that we just can't know for sure, one way or the other. More broadly, though, on Euro clearly wasn't a game-changer. In truth, it was never meant to be. There was ultimately no point in Massena pushing his army to breaking point for the sake of Almeida, and although rebuffed, the French withdrew in good order. After the 5th of May, it would have been perfectly feasible for Massena to renew the offensive or for Wellington to go on the offensive himself, but there was little benefit to doing so, and it would have been a risky move. Equally, if Wellington had somehow contrived a way to attack and break the French force, they would have simply withdrawn to the vicinity around Theodore Rodrigo, and without a siege train, there was little to be gained by attempting to blockade that fortress. The strategic situation of the remainder of the year was effectively one of stalemate. The siege of Baderhoff, which Beresford had been conducting at the same time as the battle, was not going especially well, and a few days later, on the 16th of May, he would fight a bloody and exceedingly close victory at El Buera. For more on that, have a listen to my discussion with Marcus Beresford on the Marshal's life. Yet Fuente de Janeiro did have a degree of significance for other reasons. For one thing, it was another victory, and that wasn't a trivial thing. It meant that the Anglo-Portuguese force continued to maintain the ascendancy over the French. It could be used to stoke popular support for the war, although, as you heard a couple of weeks ago when I spoke to Emma Clary, that support was by no means a given or universal. Equally, it's important to consider what the impact might have been if the French had broken through. With the River Coa just a few miles to the rear, it would have been exceedingly difficult for Wellington to extract the remnants of his force. Not necessarily impossible, as there were troops which might have been called upon to buy time and cover the Allied retreat, but certainly if the army could have been saved, it would only have been possible at considerable cost. That loss would also have sent shockwaves through the British political establishment. Wellington himself had described his force as the last army England has left, and we must take care of it, he had added. And the pressure for the recall of British troops would quite possibly have grown in the event of a defeat. At the very least, a breakthrough would have meant the French could have resupplied Almeida, prolonging the war for months. Yet the circumstances of Wellington's victory also matter. Wellington had made a mistake, and not an insignificant one. Whether this was a bad judgment, an underestimation of the size of the force Masséna was moving to strike at his right, or a lapse of concentration, the fact remains that Wellington had come exceptionally close to, at the very least, losing an entire division. This was as dangerous a moment as the action on the Coa in 1810, for which he lambasted Crawford for almost losing his light division, or the breaking of Sherbrooke's troops at Talavera in 1809. Yet this time, it was all on him. The prospect of wholesale defeat and a rolling up of the Allied position was both considerable and real, yet quick thinking and tenacity had brought victory from the jaws of defeat. It had shown the men not only that they were an integral part of Allied success, but that Wellington himself had the wherewithal to resolve a blunder if he made one. That in turn, led to a solidification of confidence that the British in particular felt towards their commander. The benefit of having Wellington at the helm was no doubt put into all the more stark contrast by events at Albuera, where the situation was much more dire. It's not insignificant that Kincaid chose the wake of Fuente Don Uro to remark that by this point, we would rather see his long nose in a fight than a reinforcement of 10,000 men any day. Wellington had blundered, but he had won nonetheless. The troops recognised that, respected it, and increasingly looked to the future with confidence that provided they had Wellington with them, they'd win. Perhaps, in some odd way, that mistake on his right wing did Wellington a favour. I want to round out this episode by giving a flavour of the experiences of those on the battlefield. As regular listeners will know, I'm a fan of giving a literal voice to the rich variety of accounts that we have from the period, which has given rise to the voices from projects. This isn't a voices from Fuente do in the truest sense, but does give you a handful of accounts from those who were in the thick of the fighting 210 years ago. We start, perhaps a little predictably, with the Duke of Wellington's dispatch recounting the battle. It's dated the 8th of May 1811 and written at Via Formosa and addressed to the Earl of Liverpool. The enemy's whole army, consisting of the 2nd, 6th and 8th Corps and all the cavalry which could be collected in Castile and Leon, including about 900 of the Imperial Guard, crossed the Agueda at Theodal Rodrigo on the second instant. The battalions of the 9th Corps had been joined to the regiments to which they belonged in the other three corps, excepting a division consisting of battalions belonging to regiments in the corps doing duty in Andalusia, which division likewise formed part of the army. As my object in maintaining a position between the Coa and Agueda after the enemy had retired from the former, was to blockade Almeida, which, which place I had learned from intercepted letters, and other information was ill-supplied with provisions for its garrison, and as the enemy were infinitely superior to us in cavalry, I did not give any opposition to their march, and they passed to Azava on that evening, in the neighbourhood of Espeya, Carpio and Gallegos. They continued their march on the 3rd in the morning, towards the Dos Casas, in three columns, two of them consisting of the 2nd and 8th Corps, to the neighbourhood of Almeida and Fort Concepcion, and the third column consisting of the whole of the cavalry and the sixth and that part of the ninth corps which had not already been drafted into the other three. The allied army had been cantoned along the river Dos Casas and on the sources of the Azava, the light division at Galegos and Aspeya. This last fell back upon Fuente Don on the Dos Casas, with the British cavalry in proportion as the enemy advanced. And the 1st, 3rd and 7th Divisions were collected at that place. The 6th Division, under Major General Campbell, observed the bridge at Alameda and Major General Sir W. Erskine, with the 5th Division, the passages of the Dos Casas at Fort Concepcion and Aldea del Abispo. Brigadier General Pax Brigade, with the Queen's Regiment from the 6th Division, kept the blockade of Almeida, and I had prevailed upon Don Julian Sanchez to occupy Navé Ava with his corps of Spanish cavalry and infantry. The Light Division were moved in the evening to join Major General Campbell upon finding that the enemy were in strength in that quarter, and they were brought back again to Fuente Don euro on the morning of the 5th, when it was found that the Eighth Corps had joined the Sixth on the enemy's left. Shortly after the enemy had formed on the ground on the right of the Dos Casas on the afternoon of the 3rd, they attacked with a large force the village of Fuente Don Euro, which was defended in a most gallant manner by Lieutenant Colonel Williams of the 5th Battalion, 60th Regiment, in command of the Light Infantry Battalion belonging to Major General Picton's division, supported by the Light Battalion of Major General Nightingale's Brigade, commanded by Major Dick of the 42nd Regiment, and the Light Infantry Battalion in Major General Howard's Brigade, commanded by Major McDonnell of the 92nd, and the Light Infantry Battalion of the King's German Legion, commanded by Major Alley of the 5th Battalion of the Line, and by the 2nd Battalion 83rd Regiment under Major Carr. The troops maintained their position, but having observed the repeated efforts which the enemy were making to obtain possession of the village and being aware of the advantage which they would derive from the possession in their subsequent operations, I reinforced the village successively with the 71st Regiment under Lieutenant Colonel the Honourable H. Cadogan and the 79th under Lieutenant Colonel Cameron and the 24th under Major Chamberlain. The former, at the head of the 71st, charged the enemy and drove them from a part of the village of which they had obtained a momentary possession. Nearly at this time, Lieutenant Colonel Williams was unfortunately wounded, but I hope not dangerously, and the command devolved upon Lieutenant Colonel Cameron of the 79th. The contest continued till night, when our troops remained in possession of the whole. I then withdrew the light infantry battalions and the 83rd regiment, leaving the 71st and 79th regiments only in the village and the 2nd Battalion, 24th Regiment, to support them. On the 4th, the enemy reconnoitred the position which we had occupied on the Dos Casas River. During that night, they moved the Duke de Abrantes Corps from Alameda to the left of the position occupied by the 6th Corps, opposite to Fuente Don Euro. From the course of the reconnaissance on the 4th, I had imagined that the enemy would endeavour to obtain possession of Fuente do Nuro and of the ground occupied by the troops behind that village by crossing the Dos Casas at Pozo Velo, and in the evening I ordered the 7th Division under Major General Houston to the right in order, if possible, to protect that passage. On the morning of the 5th, the 8th Corps appeared in two columns, with all the cavalry on the opposite side of the valley of the Dos Casas and Pozo Velo, and as the 6th and 9th Corps also made a movement to their left, the Light Division, which had been brought back from the neighbourhood of Alameda, was sent with the cavalry under Sir S. Cotton to support Major General Houston, whilst the 1st and 3rd Divisions made a movement to their right along the ridge between Turrones and Dos Casas Rivers, corresponding to that of the 6th and 9th Corps on the right of the Dos Casas. The Eighth Corps attacked Major General Houston's advanced guard consisting of the 85th Regiment under Major McIntosh and the 2nd Portuguese Catedores under Lieutenant Colonel Nixon and obliged them to retire and they retired in good order although with some loss. The Eighth Corps being thus established in Pozovelo, the enemy's cavalry turned to the right of the 7th Division between Pozo Velo and Nave de Eva, from which the from which last place Don Julian Sanchez had been obliged to retire, and the cavalry charged. The charge of the advanced guard of the enemy's cavalry was met by two or three squadrons of the different regiments of British dragoons, and the enemy were driven back, and Colonel Lamotte of the thirteenth Chasseurs and some prisoners taken. The main body were checked and obliged to retire by the fire of major general Houston's division and i particularly observed the chasseurs britanniques under lieutenant colonel Eustace as behaving in a most steady manner and major general houston mentions in high terms the conduct of a detachment of the duke of brunswick's light infantry notwithstanding that this charge was repulsed i determined to concentrate our force towards the left and to move the 7th and light divisions and the cavalry from Pozo Velo towards Fiente Don Euro and the other two divisions. I had occupied Pozo Velo and that neighbourhood in hopes that I should be able to maintain the communication across the Coa by Sabugal, as well as provide for the blockade, which objects it was now obvious were incompatible with each other. And I therefore abandoned that which was the least important and placed the Light Division in reserve in the rear of the left of the First Division and the 7th Division on some commanding ground beyond the Chirones, which protected the right flank and rear of the 1st Division, and covered the communication with the Coa, and prevented that of the enemy with Almeida by the roads between Chirone and that river. The movement of the troops upon this occasion was well conducted, although under very critical circumstances by Major General Houston, Brigadier General Crawford, and Lieutenant General Sir S. Cotton, The 7th Division was covered in its passage of the Chirones by the Light Division under Brigadier General Crawford and this last in its march to join the 1st Division by the British Cavalry. Our position thus extended on the high ground from the Chirones to the Dos Casas. The 7th Division on the left of the Chirones covered the rear of the right. The 1st Division in two lines were on the right. Colonel Ashworth's brigade in two lines in the centre and the 3rd division in two lines on the left. The light division and British artillery in reserve and the village of Fuente in the front of the left. Don Julian's infantry joined the 7th division at Frenada and I sent him with his cavalry to endeavour to intercept the enemy's communications with Theodad Rodrigo. The enemy's efforts on the right part of our position, after it was occupied, as I have above described, were confined to a cannonade and to some charges with his cavalry upon the advanced posts. The piquettes of the 1st Division, under Lieutenant Colonel Hill, of the 3rd Regiment of Guards, repulsed one of these, but as they were falling back, they did not see the direction of another in sufficient time to form to oppose it, and Lieutenant Colonel Hill was taken prisoner and many men were wounded and some taken, before a detachment of the 2nd British Cavalry could move up to their support. The 2nd Battalion, 42nd Regiment, under Lord Blantyre, also repulsed a charge of the cavalry directed against them. They likewise attempted to push a body of light infantry upon the ravine of the Chirones to the right of the 1st Division, which were repulsed by the light infantry of the guards under Lieutenant Colonel Guise, aided by five companies of the 95th under Captain O'Hare. Major General Nightingale was wounded in the course of the cannonade, but I hope not severely. The enemy's principal effort throughout the, this day again directed against Fuente Don Euro, and notwithstanding that the whole of the 6th Corps were at different periods of the day employed to attack this village, they could never gain more than a temporary possession of it. It was defended by the 24th, 71st and 79th Regiments, under the command of Lieutenant-Colonel Cameron. And these troops were supported by the Light Infantry Battalions of the 3rd Division, commanded by Major Woodgate. The Light, Divi- Light Infantry Battalions of the 1st Division, commanded by Major Dick, Major McDonnell and Major Ally, uh, The 6th Portuguese Catedores, commanded by Major Pinto by the light companies in Colonel Champel-Mont's Portuguese Brigade under Colonel Sutton, and those in Colonel Ashworth's Portuguese Brigade under Lieutenant Colonel Pinn, and by the pickets of the 3rd Division under the command of Colonel the Honourable R. Trench. Lieutenant Colonel Cameron was severely wounded in the afternoon, and the command in the village devolved upon Lieutenant Colonel the Honourable H. Cadogan. The troops in Fuente were besides supported when pressed by the enemy by the 74th Regiment under Major Russell Manners and the 1st Battalion 88th under Lieutenant Colonel Wallace belonging to Colonel McKinnon's brigade and on one of these occasions the 88th with the 71st and 79th under the command of Colonel McKinnon charged the enemy and drove them through the village and Colonel McKinnon has reported particularly the conduct of Lieutenant Colonel Wallace Brigade Major Wilde and Lieutenant and Adjutant Stewart. The contest again lasted in this quarter till night when our troops still held their post and from that time the enemy have made no fresh attempt on any part of our position. The enemy manifested an intention to attack Major General Sir W. Erskine's post at Aldea del Obispo on the same morning with a part of the Second Corps but the Major General sent the 2nd Battalion Lusitanian Legion across the ford of the Dos Casas, which obliged them to retire. In the course of last night, the enemy commenced retiring from their position on the Dos Cassas, and this morning, at daylight, the whole was in motion. I cannot yet decide whether this movement is preparatory for some fresh attempt to raise the blockade of Almeida, or is one of decided retreat, but I have every reason to hope that they will not succeed in the first, and that they will be obliged to have recourse to the last. Their support in cavalry is very great, owing to the weak state of our horse from recent fatigue and scarcity of forage, and the reduction of numbers in the Portuguese Brigade of Cavalry with this part of the army in exchange for a British Brigade sent into Estrémadura, with Marshal Sir William Beresford, owing to the failure of the measures reported to have been adopted to supply horses and men with food on the service. The result of a general action brought on by an attack upon the enemy by us might under those circumstances have been doubtful and if the enemy had chosen to avoid it or if they had met it they would have taken advantage of the collection of our troops to fight this action and throw relief into Almeida. From the great superiority of force to which we have been opposed upon this occasion your lordship will judge of the conduct of the officers and troops the actions were partial but very severe and our loss has been great the enemy's loss has also been very great and they left 400 killed in the village of fuente and we have many prisoners i particularly request your attention to the conduct of lieutenant colonel williams and lieutenant colonel cameron and lieutenant colonel the honorable h cadogan and that of colonel mckinnon and lieutenant colonel kelly 24th regiment of the several officers commanding battalions of the line and of light infantry which supported the troops in Fuente Don Uro, likewise that of Major Mackintosh of the Eighty Fifth, and Lieutenant Colonel Nixon of the Second Castadores, and Lieutenant Colonel Eustace of the Chasseurs britanniques and of Lord Blantyre. Throughout these operations I have received the greatest assistance from Lieutenant General from Lieutenant General Sir B. Spencer, and all the general officers of the army, and from the Adjutant General and Quartermaster General, and the officers of their several departments and those of my personal staff. By intelligence from Sir William Beresford, I learn that he has invested Badahoff on the left of the Guadiana, and, and is moving stores there for the attack on the place. I have the honour to inform you that the intelligence which I transmitted in my last dispatch has since been confirmed and, the, and that King Joseph passed Valladolid on his way to Paris on the 27th of April. It is not denied by the French officers that he has gone to Paris. A lengthy dispatch there from Wellington and needless to say it's interesting to see the way in which he covers up the fact that fundamentally the events on the 5th were dictated by a misjudgment on his part. It's equally obvious that the French perspective is as interesting so here is a section of Messina's dispatch explaining why he didn't continue to pursue the attack following the failure to capture itself. On the 5th of May, the English general had united in his centre very large forces and much artillery. I wished to try and pierce his centre and to drive the English army towards the lower Coa. The spirit of the troops was admirable, but I had to assure myself before making this vigorous blow as to the state of my ammunition, for during the course of this campaign I had seen myself checked repeatedly by insurmountable difficulties. It resulted from the report which the officer commanding the artillery submitted to me that there only remained in the reserve four cartridges per man, which might give 30 shots, counting what was still in the men's cartridge boxes. I did not think myself in a situation to recommence the attack with such a meagre supply, and decided to send all the empty caissons back to Rodrigo in order to bring up more ammunition. Meanwhile, I took the necessary measures to preserve the advantage already gained over the enemy. What about the fighting from the perspective of the rank and file? Well, we can call on William Wheeler, who gives a vivid account of how his commanding officer, the eccentric Colonel Mainwaring, kept the 51st Regiment calm in the thick of fighting, as they were tasked with pulling back towards the main line. 21st of May, Port Allegro wheeler wrote letters back home to his family thanks to colonel m mainwaring we came off safe although the shot was flying pretty thick yet his superior skill baffled all the efforts of the enemy he took advantage of the ground and led us out of the scrape without loss i shall never forget him he dismounted off his horse faced us and frequently called the time right left as he accustomed to when drilling when drilling the regiment his eccentricity did not leave him He would now and then call out, That fellow is out of step. Keep step and they cannot hurt us. Another time he would observe such a one, calling him by name. Cannot march. Mark him for drill, Sergeant Major. I tell you again, they cannot hurt us if you are steady. If you get out of time, you will be knocked down. He was leading his horse and a shot passed under the horse's belly, which made him rear up. You are a coward, he said. I will stop your corn three days. From the rank and file now to the perspectives offered by officers and this next piece comes from August Schallmann. Schallmann took no part in the fighting on the 3rd, but was present on the 5th. Day had hardly dawned on the morning of the 5th May, when the bugles called us to our horses and to break up camp. I was ordered to post myself with my establishment near the bridge of Castello Bom, which spans the rocky banks of the Coa. When I had put everything in order at the bridge, I rode back again to watch the battle. I had not come up behind our right wing a minute before Juno's corps, with its superior strength, had already engaged Houston's division and taking the village of Pozo Bello. A detachment of French cavalry, taking advantage of this opportunity, moved in order of battle to the hill on the opposite bank of the unimportant river known as the Dos Casas. The trumpets blew the attack to drive them from it, and the 16th Light Division had the honour of opening the dance, followed by the 1st German Hussars. It was hard for the unfortunate horses to scale the height. When they reached the summit, the men attacked with a loud hurrah, and there was terrible carnage. The clash of swords alone was audible at some distance. As, however, the French cavalry were not only superior in numbers to our men, but had also received reinforcements, and as Lords Wellington's orders had been that, with the object of sparing our cavalry, they were only to fight in single squadrons at a time, our men were obliged to retreat. The enemy cavalry followed them up quickly, and had the boldness to come right up to our lines and slash out at the foremost skirmishers. There, however, they were given such a warm reception by our light infantry and horse artillery, that they were driven back in confusion. Meanwhile, I had gone back to the bridge. A number of wounded had been taken to Castello bomb the local inhabitants, particularly those from Fuente, had all taken flight. I even met Josepha there, accompanied by her relatives and the priest of the place. With the view of protecting her, I escorted her a part of the way beyond the Koa, where she and her companions wished to hide themselves in the rocks. Among the prisoners, who were being marshaled on the bridge, was a colonel of chasseurs, a fine big fellow whose enormous bearskin cap, fiery blue eyes and huge fair moustache lent him a splendid and martial air. He spoke English very fluently, and complained that his guard had not yet offered him any food, although he was hungry. Sacré Dieu, he cried, our men have as much meat, bread, and wine as they can possibly carry in their haversacks, but you beggars have nothing. I pointed out to him, somewhat resentfully, that, unlike the French army, we English did not live on spoil and plunder and that an English soldier could not, therefore, be expected with his ration to entertain a chasseur colonel to a meal. March, I added, addressing the guard. In a great rage, he drew his bearskin down over his eyes and walked angrily across the bridge, muttering in a desperate tone, bien en avant d'or. After this intermezzo, I was just on the point of consuming a little cold luncheon, when I heard the sound of heavy gun and musket fire in the direction of Fuente. In order to strengthen his position, Lord Wellington had concentrated our army, and out of Crawford's and Houston's divisions, which had formed on the right rear of our right wing, he had made a sort of wedge which stretched from the Dos Casas to Frenada on the Coa, and in front of which, as in the case of our left wing, he had caused trenches to be dug with a slight slope on the parapet to give them more strength. While our troops took advantage of their position behind these works, the enemy endeavoured to hinder them by all kinds of manoeuvres, including, at last, a futile bombardment. Thereupon, Massena again attacked, Fion- attacked Fuente Don the key to our position, and this time he seemed bent on breaking through. cote Cocote. In great haste, I mounted a fresh horse and galloped to the place I'd occupied on the previous day. The French attack, particularly their gunfire, They usually fired salvos of six, was terrible, and the carnage in the streets of the village was, if anything, worse than the day before. The whole place rang with the clash of bayonets, the cheers of the men, and the chatter of muskets. Death flew forth from the churchyard wall and from the village church, which had been crenellated like a fortress by our men and pierced with embrasures. As usual, our side distinguished themselves with the bayonet and made themselves masters of the village. Among the dead that covered the streets of Fuente, it was quite common—it was quite a common thing—to see an English or French soldier, with their bayonets still in each other's bodies, and their fists convulsively grasping, the butt ends of their muskets lying on top of each other. At one spot in the village, I saw seven; at another, five French officers killed by bayonet wounds. We buried five hundred of the enemy, and our losses amounted to one hundred ninety-eight killed. 1,028 wounded and 294 prisoners. Both sides fought with conspicuous bravery and our Highlanders distinguished themselves above all. Let me give one example among hundreds that could be given. A detachment was skirmishing and a young Highlander concealed himself behind a rock and from this cover shot bravely at the enemy. The moment one of the older Highlanders saw this he cried to him indignantly, since when have Scotsmen fought in that cowardly manner? and seizing the younger man by the collar, pushed him into the middle of the field, exposed to the enemy's fire, with the words, When Scotsmen fight, they look straight into the enemy's eyes, whereupon he gave the order to continue firing. Without wishing to boast, I too risked my life often enough on this day, and again I was violently spattered by the mould churned up by the shot, which had been aimed too high up on the hill which I was standing, and hardly were the French out of Fuente, that I was in it gratifying my curiosity. August Sherman there clearly taking advantage of the opportunity to big up his um, seemingly limited role in the events of the Battle of Fuente Don Euro. The last account for today comes from William Grattan of the 88th Connaught Rangers, describing the particularly bloody fighting in Fuente Don Euro itself. Day had scarcely dawned when the roar of artillery and musketry announced the attack of Fuente Don Euro. And Pozzo Bello. Five thousand men filled the latter village, and after a desperate conflict, carried it with the bayonet. General Montbrun, at the head of the French cavalry, vigorously attacked the right of our army, but he was received with much steadiness by our seventh division, which, though it fought in line, repulsed the efforts made to break it and drove back the cavalry in confusion. The light troops immediately in the front of the first and third divisions were in like manner charged by bodies of the enemy's horse but by manoeuvres well executed in proper time, these attacks were rendered as fruitless as the main one against the right of our army. The officer who commanded this advanced either too much elated with his success or holding the efforts of the enemy in too light a point of view, unfortunately extended his men once more to the distance at which light troops usually fight, and the consequence was fatal. The enemy, though defeated in his principal attack, was still powerful as a minor antagonist, and seeing the impossibility of success against the main body, redoubled his efforts against those which were detached. Accordingly, he charged with impetuosity the troops most exposed, amongst whom were those I have been describing. The bugle sounded to close, but whether to the centre, right or left, I know not. Certain it is, however, that the men attempted to close to the right when to the centre would have been more desirable and before they could complete their manoeuvre, the French cavalry were mixed with them. Our division was posted on the high ground just above the plain. A small rugged ravine separated us from our comrades, but although the distance between us was short, we were in effect as far from them as if we were placed upon the Rock of Lisbon. We felt much for their situation, but could not afford them the least assistance, and we saw them rode down, and cut to pieces without being able to rescue them, or even discharge one musket in their defence. Our heavy horse and the 16th Light Dragoons executed some brilliant charges, in each of which they overthrew the French cavalry. An officer of our staff, who led one of those attacks, unhorsed and made prisoner Colonel Lamotte of the 15th French Chasseurs, but Don Julien Sanchez, or the guerrilla chief, impelled more by valour than prudence, Attacked with his guerrillas, a first-rate French regiment, the consequence was the total overthrow of the Spanish hero, and as I believe this was the first attempt this species of troops ever made at a regular charge against a French regiment, so I hope for their own sake it was the last. All the avenues leading to the towns of Fuente don euro were in a moment filled with French troops. It was occupied by our 71st and 79th Highlanders, the 83rd, the light companies of the 1st and 3rd Divisions, and some German and Portuguese battalions, supported by the 24th, 45th, 74th and 88th British Regiments, and the 9th and 21st Portuguese. The 6th Corps, which formed the centre of the French army, advanced with the characteristic impetuosity of their nation, and forcing down the barriers, which we had hastily constructed as a temporary defence, came rushing on and, torrent-like, threatens to overwhelm all that opposed them. Every street and every angle of a street were the different theatres of the combatants. Inch by inch was gained and lost in turn. Wherever the enemy was forced back, fresh troops and fresh energy on the part of their officers impelled them on again, and towards midday the town presented a shocking sight. Our Highlanders lay dead in heaps, while the other regiments, though less remarkable in dress, were scarcely so in the numbers of their slain. The French grenadiers, with their immense caps and gaudy plumes, in piles of twenty and thirty together, some dead, others wounded, with barely strength sufficient to move, their exhausted state, and the weight of their cumbrous appointments, making it impossible for them to crawl out of range of the dreadful fire of grape and round shot, which the enemy poured into the town. Great numbers perished in this way, and many were pressed to death in the streets. It was now half past twelve o'clock, and although the French troops which formed this attack had been several times reinforced, ours never had. Nevertheless, the town was still in dispute. Messina, aware of its importance and mortified by the pertinacity with which it was defended, ordered a fresh column of Ninth Corps to reinforce those already engaged. Such a series of attacks, constantly supported by fresh troops, required exertions more than human to withstand. Every effort was made to sustain the post, but efforts, no matter how great, must have their limits. Our soldiers had been engaged in this unequal contest for upwards of eight hours. The heat was moreover excessive, and their ammunition very nearly expended. The Highlanders were driven to the churchyard at the top of the village, and were fighting with the French grenadiers amongst the tombstones and graves, while the 9th French Light Infantry had penetrated as far as the chapel, distant but a few yards from our line, and were preparing to debouch upon our centre. Wallace, with his regiment, the 88th, was in reserve on the high ground, which overlooked the churchyard, and he was attentively looking on at the combat which raged below, when Sir Edward Packham gapped up to him and said, Do you see that, Wallace? I do, replied the Colonel, and I would rather drive the French out of the town than cover a retreat across the Coa. Perhaps, said Sir Edward, his lordship don't think it tenable. Wallace answered, I shall take it with my regiment and keep it too. Will you? was the reply. I'll go and tell Lord Wellington so. See here he comes. In a moment or two, Pakenham returned at a gallop and waving his hat called out, He says you may go. Come along, Wallace. At this moment, General MacKinnon came up and placing himself beside Wallace and Pakenham, led to the attack of the 88th Regiment, which soon changed the state of affairs. This battalion advanced with fixed bayonets, in column of sections, left in front, in double quick time, their their firelocks at the trail. As it passed down the road leading to the chapel, it was warmly cheered by the troops that lay on each side of the wall, but the soldiers made no reply to this greeting. They were placed in a situation of great distinction, and they felt it, They were going to fight not only under the eye of their own army and general, but also in the view of every soldier in the French army. But although their feelings were wrought up to the highest pitch of enthusiasm, not one hurrah responded to the shouts that welcomed their advance. There was no noise or talking in the ranks. The men stepped together at a smart trot as if on parade, headed by their brave colonel. It so happened that the command of the company which led this attack devolved upon me. When we came within sight of the French Ninth Regiment, which were drawn up at the corner of the chapel waiting for us, I turned round to look at the men of my company. They gave me a cheer that a lapse of many years has not made me forget, and I thought that that moment was the proudest of my life. The soldiers did not look as men usually do going into close fight. Pale, the trot down the road had heightened their complexions and they were the picture of everything that a chosen body of troops ought to be. The enemy were not idle spectators of this movement. They witnessed its commencement, and the regularity with which the advance was conducted made them fearful of the result. A battery of eight pounders advanced at the gallop to an olive grove on the opposite bank of the river, hoping by effects of its fire to annihilate the 88th, or, at all events, embarrass its movements as much as possible. But this battalion continued to press on, joined by its exhausted comrades and the battery did little execution. On reaching the head of the village, the 88th regiment was vigorously opposed by the French 9th regiment, supported by some hundred of the imperial guard, but it soon closed in with them and aided by the brave fellows that had so gallantly fought in the town all the morning, drove the enemy through the different streets at the point of the bayonet and, at length, forced them into the river that separated the two armies. Several of our men fell on the French side of the water. About 150 of the grenadiers of the guard, in their flight, ran down a street that had been barricaded by us the day before, which was one of the few that had escaped the fury of the morning's assault. But their disappointment was great upon arriving at the bottom to find themselves shut in. Mistakes of this kind will sometimes occur, and when they do, the result is easily imagined. Troops advancing to assault a town uncertain of success or flush with victory, have no great time to deliberate as to what they will do. The thing is generally done in half the time the deliberation would occupy. In the present instance, every man was put to death, but our soldiers, as soon as they had leisure, paid the enemy that respect which is due to brave men. This part of the attack was, left, was led by Lieutenant George Johnston of the 88th Regiment. that's it for this episode please remember to like share and leave a review if you'd like to support this content you can find out more about the exclusive perks in each tier at patreon.com forward slash the napoleon or if you don't fancy being out of pocket which i completely understand and are looking to fill that last shelf on your bookcase with some military history titles take a look at the link in the description which will take you to the wholesaler naval and military press By using that link, the podcast gets 10% of your spend without any additional cost to you. A particularly big thanks to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Churchill, Anna Vakulenko, Bitches de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, James Bevan, Jamie Kingston, Jim Deary, John Haynes, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, and my Commander patron, Ger Brown. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be back with a research piece for you on crime and punishment in the British Army. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.